You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. I don't know where you were summer 2008, but I was sitting in front of a TV watching Michael Phelps be ridiculous at the Beijing Olympics. Uh, If you... Remember, Beijing 2008, uh, Phelps was there and he was doing what nobody had ever really done before him. That guy at those Olympics, if you watched it, won eight gold medals at the Olympics. Do you remember the Wheaties box picture where he's got all the just, it's ridiculous what he did. Eight gold medals at, at, at seven of the eight races, he broke a world record at Beijing, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. In, in total, in his entire Olympic career, Michael Phelps has won, wait for it, 28 awards, 28 medals, 23 of them are gold. I know you guys love to throw around the, the goat term out there, like it's just giving out candy, like, oh, that meal's really good, mom, you're the goat. It, let me just say something. <laughs> goat is a very specific thing, greatest of all time. There's very few of them, right? Because the greatest, this, this is an example of a goat, right? He's done it. Statistic, he's just, he's better than you, okay? At swimming. And, and you go, why, why is this? Is it just like the physique thing? He's just got good genes, is that it? And that is true. I mean, he does, he's, he's shaped like Gumby. You know, his arms just like 20 feet long, just grabbing water. So that is true. He's got some of that in him. But then I started learning about his training regimen, and it is crazy. Do you know what this guy, in peak training seasons, do you know what Michael Phelps does? This, this is true. In peak training seasons, this man swims 50 miles a week. I don't drive 50 miles a week. This man is swimming 50. He trains six to, uh, five to six hours a day six days a week to keep up with this crazy schedule, how much he's pushing his body. This guy eats 12,000 calories a day. The only thing I've done on that list is that last one. It's the only way me and Michael Phelps are similar. That's it. The guy is incredible. He is the goat. He's the best. He does it. Why? Because Michael Phelps, when he gets in a pool, he doesn't just swim. He swims to win. Right? That's what he's doing when he gets it. When he gets in a pool, it's not Marco Polo time, right? That's not what he's interested in. He is swimming to get gold medals. It would be weird if he did anything different. Now, I'm telling you this because Paul, right here in chapter 9 and 10, is in many ways saying the same thing to us today. So he's coming off of defending himself. Last week, you remember in chapter 9, he's defending himself uh, to the church. He's coming off of that in chapter 9. Now, get, he's getting back to the topic of chapter 8, where uh, there were some folks in the church who were arrogant, right? And they were unwilling to accommodate weaker members. And they were thinking to themselves that the Christian life really doesn't require any sacrifice of them. It shouldn't cost them anything. I'm going to do what I do. And, and I don't have to bend for you. The, the Christian life really requires no sacrifice. That was what was going on in their head. And he's wanting to convince them that this thing we call the Christian life is not just Marco Polo. That's not what this is. This is us going for the gold or it's nothing. Or to say it a different way, Christians should play to win. Yeah, we should play to win. So he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? 
So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he's saying this, being a Christian is kind of like being a professional athlete. That's what he's likening it to, right? They had the Isthmus Games out there around Corinth. It was second only to the Olympics. So they would have had an idea of like what Olympic-like labor takes. He's saying there's some comparisons here that you need to make. There's some overlap. They have to work. Professional athletes have to work. We have to work. They win a prize. We win a prize. So there's a lot of overlap here. But, but there's also some discontinuity too, right? It's not the exact same thing. For one, our prize is better. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, which means the, the reward that's coming for us is everlasting, right? So, so the prize for us is better, but not only that, the stakes for us are higher. You know what I mean? So like being disqualified in a game means you go home a loser, which is bad. But being disqualified as a professing Christian means in your life you demonstrate that you don't actually know God. And that is something different than going home a loser. That is eternal ruin. And it's awful. So the prize is far greater, but the stakes are far higher too. And so if you want to win the prize and you don't want to risk disqualification, you need to discipline yourself around the proper techniques, he's saying. And I'm just going to go out on a limb this morning and assume that if you're here in the room today, it's because you on some level are here because you want to win the prize, right? We want to, we want to labor well and make it to the end. If you're here, my assumption is you're not just here for a good time. You could have slept in this morning, right? You could have done, but we're gathering here because on some level, all of us are saying, no, no. I recognize there's an imperishable crown coming. I, I want to grab hold of that. I want to I live in such a way that that is, that is certain, that, that I'm on that, that narrow path. I, I want that. And, and th- that's my working assumption this morning. But we all know, even though we want that, because this life is hard, right? This is hard. Like, compromise is everywhere. Temptation is everywhere. Compromise is so easy, isn't it? It's easy to be arrogant. It is hard to die to my rights so someone else could flourish. It's easy to sin. It's, it's hard to control myself and exercise self-discipline in order to flourish in this life. It's hard to do those things, right? So what do we need if we want to win this race and not be disqualified in the end? Well, Paul's going to give us three things that'll help us win against sin and temptation. Three things in our fight to win the prize. Humility, camaraderie, and theology. Humility, camaraderie, and theology. In other words, we need to know something about ourselves and our situation. We need to know something about other people, and we need to know something about our God. This is our training regiment if we want to win. Okay, so if you have a Bible, get it out. We're in 1 Corinthians. We're going to pick up in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And Paul starts his regiment with a warning. Simply being on the team will not help you win. That's what he's going to say. So look at verse 1. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, 
all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, so what's Paul saying here? He's saying, you know you're not the only ones who've been on the Olympic team, right? You know that, right? Like, you, you know that you're not the other, the only people on earth that have had proximity to the living God, that have interacted with him in these ways. You, you know that, right? The Bible is full of stories of people who have had serious proximity to God. And so what does he do? He takes them back to the days of the Exodus. He brings their minds back there and he's gonna go look at the parallels, right? So you say you have nearness to God? God was with them in a cloud wherever they went. I'd say that's nearness, yeah? You, you say you've been baptized? They were baptized into Moses as they passed through the Red Sea. That thing happened. You, you say that you're connected to God through communion? They had spiritual food. They had spiritual drink. You, you think you're different than them because you have Christ? Oh, but you don't understand. We're on the other side of the New Testament. We have Christ now. You think that's what makes you different than them? That you don't have to work? Newsflash, they had Christ. Look at what he says. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. They had it all. Jesus Christ spiritually sustained them in the desert, he's saying. They had it all. Everything you had, in many ways, they had. And yet, verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So he makes this connection between them and God's past people so he can show them basically this. The things you think you have that will magically protect you from sin won't. They won't do it. You need to learn a lesson from the past is what Paul's saying. So he says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Then he, he lists off some examples. He takes his back. He says this, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what is he referencing? Well, he's actually referencing the, the Exodus story, right? That that Ten Commandments mo, uh, moment with Moses. So Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai and he's got the tablets with him, right? And Mariah Carey's singing in the background, right? That whole thing happens and he shows up. And what does he see? He sees a group of like a million people having an orgy around two golden cows. I am so glad the Prince of Egypt stopped where it did at the end. When, when he's holding the tablets and the music playing, it's just magic. If that camera would have panned over his shoulder and showed the crowd, it would have been rated R, right? Thank God it's rated PG, right? That, but that's the scene that he's talking about. He's like, look, they had, they had God and look what happened to them. Look what they did. He goes on, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. You want to have a family Devo tonight? You go read Numbers 25 with your kids. Sit around the table. Get them talking about old Phineas with his spear just thrusting it through human bodies. I mean, that's a nice little thing before we eat some mac and cheese, right? That could be an option for you. Pray about it. Uh, verse 9. 
We must not put Christ to the test. These are all real stories that you can go look up, really happen in the scripture. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Here's his point. These guys ran in the God circle just like y'all do. And they were no better for it. They weren't better for it. Just being on the team will not cure you from idolatry. Go read Exodus. Just being on the team will not cure you from sexual immorality. Go read Numbers. Just being on the team will not cure you from grumbling. Just read the Bible, okay? It will not cure you. Proximity does not equal purity. Those two things are not the same thing. Hearing God does not equal holding to God. Those are two different things. Listen to this. You guys, you having a religious experience can't cure you of your sin. It is not enough to cure you of your sin. You still have to fight. It still takes work. I remember I was talking with a, a younger Christian. We were flying somewhere on a, on a plane, sitting next to him, and he was kind of processing. He was in a tough spot. Uh, he was wrestling with a lot of doubt toward God, um, a lot of lack of love toward God. And I remember him saying to me on the plane, he goes, man, I ch- if I could have just been there, if I could have been there with Moses, if I could have passed through the Red Sea and like seen the things, you know, like if I could have seen the manifold, if, if, if I could have been there, I, I know I wouldn't have this issue. I, I know I would believe, I, I would love them. I, would, I was just like, bruh, have you, read, have you read Exodus? Are you just getting this from the movies? Do, do you know like, here's how Exodus goes. Red Sea, 15 seconds, I hate God. That's Exodus right? It won't cure you. You could see all the things. He could speak from the mountain. Moses could come down. It's just not enough. Being on the team will not cure your sin problem. You still have to fight. The proximity does not equal purity. Paul is inviting us to be humble, And to not think that just because we're in this tribe that we're okay, but to be humble enough to not think I'm immune to sin. Does that make sense? Let me me say it a different way. Um, Here is a sentence that will kill you. That'll never happen to me. That that crazy thing I saw in the news that they did, (laughs) that that will never happen. The thing that I heard about has happened in our church with that couple, that's not going to happen to me. That'll never happen to me. That will take your life. Yes, it will. Paul is saying when we start to think that way, we're actually abandoning the humility that protects us from ruining ourselves. Yeah? So guys, please don't fool yourself. Like you in your room with a girlfriend at midnight just talking, isn't gonna go well. It's going to go poor, even if you both got your purity rings on. It doesn't matter. It's not gonna go well for you, 
right? You've set yourself up for a loss. I remember um, me and Kelly, uh, we were uh, engaged years ago, engaged, and we were uh, hanging at my parents' house. They had just went to bed. We were upstairs. They went to bed downstairs, and we were already kind of not set up for a win. It was, it was nighttime, all that stuff. We were watching a movie, and we're on the couch together, and just the mood is right. The movie's on. The lights are low. She's looking fine. I'm looking at her, all the things. And all of a sudden, I just burst off the couch and I run downstairs and stand in the kitchen, just like this. And she comes down after a couple of minutes. She's like, what on earth are you doing? Is this, is this what marriage is going to be like with you? What is this? Is this like a thing you have? I said, like, no, I, I'm not strong enough to fight against your feminine wiles. And I had to get away to the least sexy room in the house, the kitchen, <laughs> to be okay. We, we weren't setting ourselves up for success anyways, being there, but I had enough wherewithal to go, I'm not above whatever could have happened. I know that I could fall. And when we start to think to ourselves, that will never happen to me, that is the sentence we say before it happens to us. You know what I mean? Like we have to be really careful, guys. Knowing you're not above any sin will protect you from every sin. Knowing you're not above any sin will protect you from every sin. This is why Paul says in verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We need humility if we want to win the prize. We need to know I'm not above anything. I can fall too. It could happen to them in the Old Testament, happen to them in Corinth. It could happen to me. We need humility if we want to win the prize, but not just that. We need camaraderie. We need camaraderie. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, that sentence, it kind of cuts two ways. On the one hand, Paul's looking back at what he just said with the Exodus story and all that, and he's going, hey, just so you know, you're no better than those guys, right? They did it, you could do it. But on the other hand, he's actually letting us know something really sweet and encouraging. He's saying, hey, when you're tempted to sin, family, you are not alone in your temptation. You need to remember that. You're not alone. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In the Greek, the, the, a literal reading would say something like, no temptation has taken you except the human one. This is a human thing. This is, you, you are not alone in the struggle. Everybody out there is going through what you're going through in one way or another. In, in other words, for you to win the race of this Christian life, one of the things you need is the knowledge when you're tempted that it's not just you. You actually need that to fight the fight well. The knowledge that it's not just me. Others are struggling alongside me. Camaraderie helps us win. I'll give you an example. Uh, the National Library of Medicine, they released a study not too long ago on weight loss. And here's what they found. 95% of the people they surveyed who started a weight loss program with their friends completed the program to the end, finished it out. Compared to 76% who just did it as lone rangers, just did it by themselves. Now listen to this. More than that, the friend group was also 42% more likely to maintain their weight loss than the folks who said, oh, I'm going to go it alone. Right? What does that mean for us? It, it, it means that there's something about knowing 
I'm not fighting by myself. There's something about knowing it's hard for her too. It's hard for him too. They're wrestling too. They're fighting. There's something about that information that actually empowers and strengthens us to make it to the prize. It's actually built into how God made this world that our knowing that strengthens us. It helps us persevere. It's what Peter said in 1 Peter 5. Remember this? When he, when he looks at the people and he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. What? Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So he's saying what? Hey, know that you have an enemy. His name is the devil. He's out to kill you. And we're to resist him by faith. And how are we to do it? By knowing that the same kinds of suffering that I'm dealing with are being dealt with by him and by her. There's something empowering in the human condition when I have camaraderie, when I have allies with me in the fight. I'm strengthened to make it to the end. We are all empowered to win against Satan when we know each other's struggles. Does that make sense? Now, can I tell you the only way this works? It's going to blow your mind. If we know each other's struggles, right? That's the only way the camaraderie thing works is if I actually know what's going on in your life and you know what's going on in my life. If we can live exposed, vulnerable lives, that's the only way this is going to work. This is why we beat the drum so hard around here at Stonegate about getting in groups that it's not just about the, the Sunday gathering. This is so important, so vital, but that you need life on life, it, it, like interlocking your world with another person kind of community here. And so we encourage you to get in, plugged into a group so that you can be known with someone. They can know you. You can know them. You guys can confess sin to one another so that we can all be strengthened so I can know I'm not in the struggle alone. The, the temptation that I'm undergoing is common to man. It's common to that person and that person. And so I'm actually strengthened to be able to fight better. So I'm just going to encourage you. If you've been kind of towing the line on this thing and you just haven't taken the full step in, you need to step in to some kind of group here at Stonegate. We've got so many of them. And they, they're not just here for like a church growth technique for us. They're not just like, this is just what evangelicals do. This is your survival. These types of things are how we don't get disqualified in the race community. You need it. We need camaraderie. We need the humility to know I can fall. We need the camaraderie to know so can he. And Paul gives us one more tool to help us in the race. He gives us theology. We need to know something about our God in the middle of our temptations. So look at verse 13. It says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also pro provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I bet a lot of you know this verse. This is, this is probably one of the most well-known verses in the book of 1 Corinthians. And for good reason, right? What an encouragement to us. That, ju that just said, God is with you in the struggle. He is, your God is with you in the struggle. He, he says, God is faithful. 
in your moments of temptation. He calls him faithful. He will never not be there for you. But let me just clarify, because it's richer than just he, he will be there for you like a cheerleader's there for you. Like a cheerleader has to show up at the game whether you win or lose, whether you're bad or, or good, doesn't matter, and they're cheering you on, go team, go, right? It, it's more than just God's your cheerleader and he's faithful. God is actually, the text says, resourcing you in your temptation. Now that's profound when you slow down and think about it. Look what he says. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's, that's amazing news. That's amazing. Let's think about what this means for a moment. Here's one of the things it means. It means you're seen by God. It means you're seen by God. For God to be able to provide a way of escape in every temptation, God has to see you in every temptation. Do you know what I mean? Like, like your father is never out on special assignment when you're struggling. He's never like out away, I got work, kids, I'm sorry. I've got to. He's never out doing something while you're in the thick of it. The promise of 1 Corinthians 10 is he's right here. He's omnipresent, so he is with you in the middle of your temptation. He knows it. He knows how it makes you feel. He knows the struggle it is. His heart's breaking for you as you're fighting. He's pulling for All of those things are happening. He sees you. That's an empowered thing to, to be seen, isn't it? That's incredibly empowering. He sees you, but not only that, if this verse is true, it means I'm not fated to fail anymore. Now, what do I mean by that? Does anybody else feel like this? We're all train wrecks, right? I mean, if you're new here, maybe you just showed up and you don't even do the church thing. You're like, oh, here's where all the good people are. Fake news, okay? We're not. Uh, we're a mess. Uh, and welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we're a mess and we've got sin in our lives. And some of us, maybe many of us, have sins that are, that are just pervasive and, they're, and they just... It's been years and the progress has been an inch. You know what I mean? And maybe even when I say that, you think about it right away. You're like, yeah, that's, that's me. That's my, it's, that can feel hopeless. Can it not? We're like, I just, is this me? Is this how it's, is this just what I'm fated to be? I'm just going to be the guy who wrestles with X. I'm just going to be the girl who never gets over Y, right? That's, that's a hopeless feeling, isn't it? But look at what this verse is saying to us. It's saying that in every moment of temptation, your father is with you, enabling you to succeed. So think about this. You fell last week into that same old sin. Gosh, that's, that stinks. That's, that's sad. But that has no bearing on this week. Your God, your father is back again this week with you in that same moment, coming down to your level supplying you with what you need, giving you the way out. He's right there and he's not doing it with a look on his face like, really? This was last week. We doing this again? He's back again with fresh resources to help you win the race. It's the Hunger Games. Katniss Everdeen, right? 
She learns that in order for people to win in the games, they have to get wealthy sponsors to resource them in times of need. So you remember that scene in the first Hunger Games? She's up in the tree, right? And she's on her last leg, like literally her legs all jacked up and she's bleeding. She's like, I don't know what to do. And she looks down and there's like a crew of people wanting to kill her down there. And she said, she doesn't know what to, this is it. You know, this is, a, this is a moment of crisis for her, right? And then all of a sudden in all of this chaos, she looks up and what does she see? She sees this little package just floating down on a cute little parachute. There it is, right? And it lands on the tree. She opens it up. And what is it? It's the balm, this healing balm that she's able to apply to her wound so that she can continue. And it gets her healed and she's all good. Now, what is that moment? In her hour of need, someone with abundant resources who wants to see her win gives her provision so she can persevere. Does that sound familiar to anyone? That is what God does for the Christian. In our hour of need, he comes and supplies everything we need to win, to overcome, tailor-made for that moment. I can't tell you how many times for me in my early years when I was just coming out of pornography addiction, wrestling with all that, how many times the power would go out when I was on the computer. How I can't tell you how many times. I can tell you how many times I couldn't boot up the darn thing when you had to boot up a computer. It's like, what? well, why, right? Why now? I can't tell you how many, I'm not making that, how many times in the middle of that moment of like, okay, am I gonna jump into that or am I gonna run? How many times I got a call on my phone from my accountability partner just going, hey man, just thinking about you, praying. Just wanna see if you're okay, if you need anything. What is that? Is that coincidence? Is that serendipity? That is 1 Corinthians 10 taking place. That in the moment of my temptation, my God comes and supplies everything that I need to get free. And he's doing that for all of us. If we would just have eyes to see it and grab the package. That's the invitation. The package is coming every time, guys. Every time your back's against the ropes, that package is coming. Will you grab it? Because the promise of God's word is it is coming for you. He sees you and he is resourcing you to be free in this moment. That is an awesome promise, isn't it? That's an awesome promise. We should treasure that promise today. When your back's against the ropes, you should treasure this promise and grab onto that. Now, last thing and then we're done. Uh, Because uh, in this verse, there's something that uh, we may be tempted to miss. Um, Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, God will provide a way of escape. He does not say that. In the Greek, the article is there. It reads, he will provide the way of escape. Now, why is that in there? I think it means something. I I think it means this. More than just tailor-made deliverances that God's providing for you, tailor-made escape hatches for you in a given moment with a specific temptation that shows up in that time, which happens and will happen every time for us. It's the promise of God's word. But more than just that, that God has in mind a particular event, a particular way that God is meaning to free us from sin and temptation. There's a singular way of escape God has provided for us, and that is the finished work of Jesus in the gospel on our behalf. I mean, Jesus even calls himself the way in John 14. He is the great escape hatch for us. I think what Paul is saying by he will provide the way of escape 
is that God, <clears throat> through his spirit, will help you in that moment call to mind Jesus. Crucified for you, buried for you, risen on your behalf. And he will help you by his spirit, call that to mind. And when you grab hold of Jesus in the gospel, you beat temptation. It is the way of escape that God has provided for everyone who would grab hold of the cross. It is the way. It works like this. Moment of temptation comes and the spirit brings to mind the good news of what Jesus has done on my behalf. I go, Jesus died for me. So I, I see this car, or I see this pair of shoes, I see this guy, I see this girl, I see this food, I see this drink, I see this sex, I see this whatever it is, and, and I see the promises it's making to me that it will satisfy me at, at my core, but I remember the gospel, and I remember that Jesus died and rose for me so that he could purchase for me Delight in him forever. He promises to be the great satisfier for me that those things just cannot do. So I'm going to run to him. I remember the gospel and I run back to Jesus, the one who quenches my thirst. Jesus died for me. So I, I could let this anger for this person keep stewing. I could kind of live in this and let it grow and, then, and pour it out on her. I could do that. But I remember in the gospel that God the Father poured out his anger on his son on my behalf, though I've done so many worse things to him than she did to me. And so I'm not gonna take this little cup of my anger and pour it out on her because I'm watching the one who poured it out on his son for me. And I'm getting resilience because of that. I'm getting hope, I'm getting gratitude that's keeping me from that. It's the gospel. Jesus died for me, so I could just keep hoarding all of my stuff, all of my money, because I'm so scared of the life that, that I might lose if I lose this. But, but then I remember in the gospel that Jesus Christ on the cross has purchased for me an inheritance that is everlasting, that one second after I die, I will have Jesus and all that Jesus has will be mine as well. So I don't need to hoard anymore. I can open up my hands around stuff. I can be generous with people. I can look to bless you. I can look to give instead of just holding on for dear life. Do you see, the gospel is the way of escape for all of us. This is the, the final means God has given to free you from your sin, to free you from temptation, to liberate you, to not be disqualified so that we can actually grab hold of the imperishable wreath. It is the good news of Jesus that does us, that does this. He, he gives us a vision of humility that we need to be lowly people. We need to be people who, who know we're not above any sin. We need to be people people who are committed to camaraderie, that we're committed to a group of people that I can know you, you can know me, and we can be strengthened together to fight. And we're a people now that embrace good theology, that my God is faithful. He's with me in this. He sees me in this. I'm not abandoned by him. I'm strengthened to know that he's supplying particular needs I have in this moment of temptation. And he solved the greatest problem by hanging on the cross for my sins and giving me the great way of escape. This is the way we win the prize. This is what Paul is showing us in the text. And all that we grab onto the, that when we, leave here today, which maybe not be, maybe it's not filled with temp, 
convicting moments for you right here, but it will be in the car when you get in there, right? It will be when you start talking to the fam. It will be when you get home in your bedroom again that we could bring to mind humility, camaraderie, theology. I need to hold on to these truths and my God will set me free as I grab hold of that package, as I grab hold of him, as I grab hold of the cross. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing the way of escape for us. I love that your eyes are on me when I'm struggling. And I hope that's a comfort to my brothers and sisters here. I hope that, it, that you would comfort us by your spirit and that when the, when, in the moment of temptation, my God sees me. He's here with me. He's pulling for me. He's resourcing me. And he's put me in a church where I have community that I could be strengthened, that I could run after the prize and actually win this thing. God, what a gift that is. We love you for that. We give you thanks for that. And we pray that you would help us be people who would not in the end, after having preached to others, be disqualified. We don't want that. We want to run the race well and we want to win the prize. So God, would you help us? And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.